Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched Opening Night, a 1977 drama by John Cassavetes. Gina Rowland stars as a middle-aged Broadway actress who witnesses the accidental death of a teenage fan, sending her spiraling into a breakdown. Drinking heavily and hallucinating the dead girl's ghost, she begins to veer off script during a test performances of her latest play, causing tensions with the director and the playwright. So this was a request from Jen on Patreon. Thank you to Jen. Jen also requested uh, Mikey and Nikki, which we did last year, which stars John Cassavetes, but was directed by Elaine May. And I know I'm going to be referring to that film a fair amount during this conversation, and we definitely recommend you check out that episode, which we will link to in the show notes. I have never seen a Cassavetes-directed movie before this one, which seems impossible given how influential and important he was. So I was really glad to finally watch one and have this excuse, but my sort of frame of reference for him is so much from that movie we watched last year, which I was thinking about a lot watching this movie. I liked this film a lot more than you did. <laughs> Based on I mean, my, it wasn't that uh, I was watching it being like, I hate this, but I was fi- I found it extremely difficult to focus on this movie. Um, Cassavetes, who I also have not seen any other films by him, uh, he has like a very specific kind of style. Um, obviously, we both kind of read up on him along with watching this movie, so we can give you an informed review. But, you know, it's very kind of naturalistic in some ways and very surreal in other ways. And the way that he's sort of floating between people's like emotional states and conversations, I just find it very hard to concentrate on in a film that's kind of very much a character study and doesn't have a particularly solid plot. Yes. I did find some of the sort of structural things going on in this movie to be not the best elements of it. It's not a very articulate way of phrasing that. But um, the things I disliked about the movie were kind of parts that felt a bit shaggy. It's very long. It's almost two and a half hours long. um, And it kind of, you know, goes off into lots of different directions, which is obviously something he's doing intentionally. And I think it works better in certain places than others. But I think when the movie is really working, it's really, really working, kind of firing at all cylinders. And so I was kind of- I mean, Gina Rowlands is incredible. And I could really see just from this film, like why she's seen as such a great, and like she and Cassavetes obviously made several films together. They married very young, kind of before they were successful in their acting and directing careers, and then made several films together. Uh, 14, I believe made many films together. <laughs> and now because because Cassavetes died relatively young, she's kind of been controlling his estate since then. Yes. They married like four or five months after meeting at an acting school in New York. And then like she still talks about him completely just in glowing terms, which is remarkable. <laughs> like that is not how I think of most marriages between young people who've only known each other for five months turning out but in this who case, had this really so. fruitful artistic relationship where he primarily made movies where she was having an agonizing nervous breakdown <laughs> and he was an unbelievable like chronic alcoholic and you know that was a large part of the reason why he died so young so you yeah. just imagine that there was some horrible drama going on and it really does not seem like that was the case they worked it out in the art 
Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I have some quotes from her from an interview that Matt Solarsites did, um, which we'll read throughout, but she seems great. She's still alive. She's 90. But she, I mean, she clearly just, like, adored him. And according to her anyway, like, he, he was just a great person to work with. Nice to hear how, how you know, how pleasant. But he was an act, he was a very prolific actor as well. Like, we kind of think of him now more as a director, which I'm sure is probably what he would prefer. But he acted a lot in the 60s. I was nominated for an Academy Award for, I'm now forgetting which movie. I mean, he did The Dirty Dozen and Rosemary's Baby. Like, probably it, nowadays, like, his most iconic acting role is Rosemary's Baby, where he plays Rosemary's husband. He, I mean, he was already directing that part. By that point, his kind of acting and directing career overlapped a great deal. And he was making these quite serious, independent dramas. And he also was, like, extremely into impro- like improvisational acting, um, so this is kind of around the time when method acting was really big and he had a sort of alternate acting style that was very improv-based. Um, not in the sense of improv comedy, obviously, but just in the sense of kind of working off each other. But like his films were scripted. It was just that he had a very kind of flexible attitude towards actors. And I think in our an episode recently, I was kind of talking about how actor turned director and actor slash directors often have like a lot more flexibility in those terms with other actors um, just because they kind of know the other side of the job a lot better. Uh, And there's a great story from when he was kind of just starting out still in the 1950s and he was a young actor and he like auditioned to be in the actors like it was a method acting studio that was literally called the actor's studio run by Lee Strasberg and um, and that was at the point when it was like (laughs) practically like cult-like following um, in the acting industry and he and his pal uh, they basically pranked the studio by going in and saying they were doing a scene from like a new play and then they were actually improvising the entire thing to like show how impressive they were. And uh, they got in and then Cassavetes was like, well, you're going to have to give me a full scholarship because I don't have any money, which was a lie. And based on the fact that the actor's studio fell for both of those lies, he decided that they weren't good enough at understanding what acting was because they were so gullible. So he was like, I'm too good for this and went off and went and did his own thing. Uh, But obviously there was a kind of a long period when he was a semi-struggling actor and was doing a kind of wide variety of acting roles in different genres, some of which were more serious than others until he kind of got more solidified as a director. But like, he was very prolific and it kind of seemed like if he had not died young, he would have had a kind of Scorsese level career. Cause like at the, to- at the point where he died, he already had like dozens of unmade projects still, even though he was making film after film. Well, what's, I mean, there are many things that are interesting about his career, but the thing that he's sort of renowned for now is that he self-financed his big famous films from the seventies, which was, extremely extremely unusual and part of the reason I think the impression that I get part of the reason that he kept acting sort of throughout the directing career was that he got you know paid to be in these big Hollywood productions and then he could use that money to finance these little movies that he was making and even now that is not really a model that is used often you know the independent film industry is way, way bigger than it was in the 70s when it didn't really exist very much at all. Like it, There were some people making movies outside of the studio system, but it was not an industry in any organized way. 
But the idea of people funding their own movies is, like, people don't do that. And that's smart. Like, (laughs) they're very expensive things to make, and you can lose a lot of money on them. But this was obviously, like, that was what he wanted to do. He had a very clear goal. And, like, nobody saw this movie. The (laughs) The way it's described on the Wikipedia page is unbelievable. Like, only came out a few years after Woman Under the Influence, which was the biggest critical success that Cassavetes and Roland had together. Um, got nominated for multiple Oscars, is still the most famous film that they made now. Obviously a huge critical hit. This comes out a few years later and everyone is just like, no, we don't want it. Like, <laughs> thumbs down. I mean, crucially, everyone in America was like that, but it did okay in Europe. I mean, that, of course, I'm sure the French were very into this film. But the review in Variety reads, One must question whether more than a handful of moviegoers are interested in the effort, whether audiences have not already seen enough of Cassavetes' characters. He's made these films before, and not many seemed interested in them. And it opened in one theater in Los Angeles. If only one could say the same of Woody Allen. <laughs> I know. And, like, there were some screenings in New York, and, like, literally, like, no one went and saw this movie. It was basically dead in the water. And then after he died, it kind of was re-released and was rediscovered. But it's not like he was, and, like, I, I don't know about the box office courses of his other films, but it's not like he was making these movies, financing them himself, and they were, like, making him a ton of money. Like, that was not what was going on. He was obviously doing them for his own artistic satisfaction. And there was a anecdote that was going around Twitter the other day that I don't have on me, unfortunately, but it was some story about like the morning after the, or the morning that the Oscar nominations got announced, the, the year that went under the influence got Oh yeah, I was trying to find that. And it was a great, great quote. <laughs> yeah, I know. I couldn't find it either. Um, you know, it was this huge celebratory morning, right? Because this little movie that they'd made had been recognized and they're like looking out, he and his producer friend or someone are like looking out over over Hollywood, and he's just like, fuck him, whatever. Like, I, I don't give a shit. And that is clear from this movie, which he made immediately after, which is incredibly critical of the artistic establishment. And uh, nobody went and saw it, and he just carried on, which I find very impressive, particularly because it sounds like he was pleasant to work for and not a monster, which is often the case with these, with, I mean, directors in general, but especially these kind of like maverick types, right? Like, but the quote, the first quote I have from Gina Rollins from this interview that Matt Zoller cites did, I think he asked her, like, how do the films you made with John Cassavetes stack up in like all the films you've done? Like, or how would you put rank them in terms of your favorites? And she's like, oh, well, these are my favorites. Like just all of them would be number one collectively. And she says, you know, there's there's nothing like working for John. Everyone loved it. It was not like working for anybody else, even though everybody else there were a lot of terrific, talented people who had their own way of doing it. The freedom that John gave his actors was astounding. And she says that none of it was improvised after the first movie that he made, but everyone kind of thought that it was, which is very similar to, um, I think, the reaction to Mikey and Nikki, which people still now often misinterpret as being improvised and it definitely wasn't but it just has that feeling because the acting is so good she does say there was always room for improvisation if the actor felt like something or thought something but like it definitely was scripted but a lot of the time it wasn't necessary john was always thinking a great deal ahead of us he loved and adored actors 
I think that just comes through so much in the filmmaking, which, I mean, I do have some criticisms of the movie, and we'll get more into the movie in a second, but all the actors in this film are great, and it's so clear that he was sort of crafting the movie around and for them in a way that highlights them, and especially her performance. And I also thought it was really interesting that she says in this interview that, like, there was nothing from their personal lives in the scripts of the movies they made, which also seems impossible. But she's just like, no. Because <laughs> this is literally like, just, just a like, movie, a movie where she, a middle-aged actress, is playing a middle-aged actress who is having a breakdown because she's a middle-aged actress. So, <laughs> And she, she says, like, yeah, you kind of take your characters home a little bit. And then also when you're working, you kind of think about your personal life, but like she she was clearly not a method actress, right? Like she wasn't going home and tormenting herself. And he asks, in all the years you worked with John, there was never a moment where you said, you took this from our life. That's a little too personal. What were you thinking? And she says, never happened. And I don't think he would have done that. It wasn't his style. I certainly was perfectly willing to do his scripts because they were so honest. I just loved his scripts. I thought he was a marvelous writer. He was a marvelous actor too, and a marvelous director. He was just a really talented guy. It's like, great. <laughs> but I mean, one thing I thought watching this and was like, he and Woman Under the Influence, which I haven't seen, obviously, I think you know, shares a lot of thematic ground with this. And there's the last big movie he made um, several years after this in the 80s, um, which I think is called Love Streams, is also about an alcoholic. And like he was an alcoholic and there's a lot of that in these various movies, right? But she's often playing the character who's dealing with that issue and also kind of struggling with reality a little bit, although he plays the alcoholic character in Love Streams. But one thing I was thinking watching this was like, she's incredible in this movie, but I wondered if she was a little bit his stand-in. It's impossible to know where all, you know, creative work comes from, of course, but I feel like part of what must have worked about the collaboration was that like he was obviously wasn't tormenting her with these parts, even though she's doing really kind of emotionally intense work. Like she obviously enjoyed it, but I kind of feel like he's pushing off something that he must have been feeling in some way, right? Onto her. And so it's not like her torment that he's stealing from her and putting in the movie. It's something that he's feeling and then she kind of expresses in some way. Which, I mean, again, you, there's only so much psychoanalysis you can do with this stuff, but it just felt like that was part of probably what made the collaboration work to me. Okay, so we kind of gave like a little taste of the premise of this movie at the start, but I'll kind of go into a bit more detail now. Uh, Gina Rowland's character, Myrtle Gordon, is this really successful Broadway actress um, who's clearly got lots of fans, and she is... Uh, she's working in this play where we don't know precisely what the play is about but basically it's about like a menopausal woman and her relationships it doesn't seem like a particularly inspiring or exciting play it's quite conventional no. <laughs> um, and like she she and her castmates are doing like test shows out of town working towards the titular opening night which will be in New York and uh, she is like not gelling with her role at all. But the thing that's kind of the initial kicking off point of her emotional conflict is that um, there's always loads of fans kind of thronging outside the stage door. And one evening there's this really kind of hysterical teenage girl fan who's trying to get her attention. And they basically fob this girl off and drive away. And the girl gets hit by a car and dies. So she witnesses this girl's death and like 
obviously her kind of castmates are kind of like, well, that's sad, but they basically just want to go to dinner and move on. <laughs> and she's really upset by it. And it was kind of interesting because it actually reminded me of that movie we reviewed a few weeks ago, um, Margaret, which has a very similar premise. And Gina Rowland's character, Myrtle, is like very torn up by this and becomes a little bit obsessed with this girl. And that kind of changes her emotional state. So she's both kind of hallucinating this girl's ghost as a sort of symbol of her own lost youth, which is like tying into the themes of the play. And she's also just getting like more and more, like she's more, she's just having a breakdown. Like she's starting to drink more. And she's also really in conflict with the role that she's playing. And that kind of the other characters we have is there's, um there's the director who's played by Ben Gazzara, um, who is he, like clearly knows her really well and is very patient with her, but patient in the sense that like they can't fire her because she's the star of the show and she's really successful and there's no other option. So they have to try and find some way to like flatter and, and cajole her into being functional. So it's not like he's actually as sympathetic as he might initially seem. And then there's Joan Blondell, who is playing the playwright, uh, who's this older woman who is also surprisingly patient with the fact that this lead actress is basically being like an extremely problematic diva and like messing up performances intentionally. Like she's, you know, having hysterics on stage. She's like changing the play. She's having arguments backstage about her role. And then there's also uh, John Cassavetes has a supporting role kind of as one of her onstage partners. So there's like the guy who plays her lover in the play and in real life is her ex-lover. And they have like a couple of really pivotal scenes in the stage play that are like played several times over on screen. And so you have this kind of portrait of this actress. It's quite kind of psychoanalytical because like you first think the problem is one thing and then you think the problem is another thing. And you see her kind of acknowledging the fact that she is in conflict with her own aging, but in like a more complex way than the rather sort of simplistic interpretation you see from characters like the playwright, who is just like, you just need to admit that you're getting older, like you're an older woman. And obviously Gina Rollins doesn't want to admit that because she has a lot of concerns about, you know, being an aging actress and being typecast in older roles. And then it kind of comes to to a conclusion, which we will discuss later on. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, stylistically, um, I found this relatively hard to focus on while I was watching because of just kind of the way like the, the way Cassavetes works as a storyteller. But like after I'd finished watching, I was like, I was very impressed by it. Like it just seemed like there was a lot of thought going to all of the characters, which is kind of not immediately obvious as you're watching. But I really enjoyed kind of the interplay between Myrtle and all of these other people in her life. Because like during the first half of the film, I kind of felt like, wow, they're really like going out of their way to help her. And it's like, <laughs> but they're not though. They're not really. Like the whole the whole point is like the show must go on and they're not actually helping her. Like they're trying to facilitate a situation that means that she continues to function in a way that profits their job. And also like in terms of her relationships with people, I did find it interesting that like her most passionate and like involved relationships are with people who don't exist because we don't see her having like really close friends and stuff in her life, even though she's clearly an actress who has like lots of social connections, but the people she's most invested in are the fictional characters she's playing on stage, who she's like constantly in conflict with. And this dead girl who she has basically made up. Yes. I had a different reaction to this movie, I think, or partially different. Mm -hmm. I was very sympathetic to her the whole time. 
Though she's obviously doing things at certain points where, like, if you had to deal with this person in real life, it would be, it would be difficult. But I found virtually everyone around her to be intolerable. From, I mean, they're terrible. <laughs> from the beginning of the movie. A very unflattering depiction of the theatre industry. <laughs> and specifically the director, who is played very well by Ben Gazzara who I recognized immediately. And I don't think I've seen him in anything before. And this was driving well, he's me like nuts kind of the, the archi- time. The way they've kind of styled him is like the archetypal kind of 1970s sleaze. Like he's got this yes. sort of comb over and he's wearing these like open shirts, you know? <laughs> yes. But there's a scene right at the beginning where he's on the phone with her and you don't, like they're all staying in this hotel in New Haven I think this happens less now that plays get sort of previewed in New Haven specifically, but it, that definitely used to be the, the It's place a very sort of mid-20th century thing. Yes, they refer to this in All About Eve as well. And so they're all staying in the same hotel while they preview this play there. And he's on the phone with her and you can't hear her half of the conversation, but he's in the room with his wife. And he's having to say like, oh, I love you so much, on and on and on, to this actress, while his wife is standing right there. And, like, trying to get his attention in a kind of jokey way. And it becomes clear in the course of this conversation that she really doesn't want to do this scene where she gets slapped on stage. And he is not having it. He, he just like, no. And he tells her that it's just, like, that's the tradition of women in theater, is that you get slapped. Yeah, I think he literally so, says, like, actresses get slapped. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm barely paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact yeah. quote, but, and that that's just what's going to have to happen. And they show this scene the next day when they're sort of rehearsing the scene where she has to get slapped by the Cassavetes character. And she really doesn't want to do it. And obviously, like, you know, there are plays with all kinds of different subject matter. It's not like she's, I mean, Although they're not having her do the thing where, like, you turn your head and, like, you hit your, clap your hands or whatever. Like, she's actually supposed to hit her in the face. And she just cannot tolerate it. And her reaction is to sort of just, like, lie on the ground and sort of wail. Um, She's obviously drunk. But the response of all the men and the female playwright to this is just, like, they are so impatient. They cannot deal with it. Well, the playwright is, like, so condescending. (laughs) Oh, my God. I loved that character. I loved her. She is superb. She's wearing this getup that is just lots of sort of pastel-type colors, and then this hat that is, like... Is wonderful. Blue and green shiny feathers. I can't even describe. Watching this kind of in tandem with the fact that there was like a stupid film internet argument about like oh like no film before 1980 is watchable this is like a serious drama by a man in the 70s that has like amazing female characters and is really nuanced like please (laughs) yeah and like as the movie goes on you see the director kind of doing the thing where he's like telling her he loves her and like they make out a couple times but then he's horrible to her And you don't see the origins of, like, where, like, how that began, obviously, because it's before the beginning of the film. But he obviously feels like, well, this is just what I have to do to deal with this actress, is to just make out with her 
Because that's the only way to deal with women. Yeah. <laughs> right? And also kind of the, the perception from all of these characters around Myrtle is like, it's a very superficial interpretation of what's happening, which is that they are all going for, yes, she's struggling with aging and she's struggling with this role, which like she freely admits, but the men all frame it very much around the idea of sexual availability, which like isn't really something that she's focusing on and also isn't visibly like a really major part of the play, even though like the, the staging of the play is so funny because like the Cassavetti's character, who's her onstage boyfriend, is a photographer and they have this set, which is like this kind of theatre apartment, which just has like giant photographs of old women. <laughs> And I was like, oh yeah, some some great stage design here. Um, but you have these scenes where it's like, you know, the the director is like, oh, I don't think if you're a, is a woman, you're a, you're a professional, um, and like you're a, you're a highly sought after professional. And it's like they're kind of this very transparent flattery, and like to a certain extent, it's like clear that because she's like a stage actress and this is the kind of relationship she has with her creative partners a lot of the time, like sometimes maybe it's helpful to have someone reassuring you and telling you that you're great and all this kind of flattery stuff. But also it's so false and they're seeing that as like the resolution to the problem. And it's like the initial problem here is that like she saw someone die and she was the only person who cared about it. Even though she doesn't necessarily fully care about this girl because she's seen that girl now as this sort of metaphorical ghost of her own youth. But like even so... The co- the problem is more complex. <laughs> yes. I did feel that the depiction of the sort of, like, apparatus of shitty people around her was perhaps slightly more effective than the actual characterization of her as a person. I think Rollins is incredible in the movie. She, I mean, I don't think I, I've ever really seen her in anything... I mean, I've seen The Notebook. I was about to say, you've not seen as... The Notebook? I mean, I've not seen The Notebook, but... <laughs> I did yeah, I mean, I think I've school. seen her, like, in stuff, but, you know, not her, like, iconic roles. Yeah. I mean, she's really, really amazing in this movie. Mm. However, I felt like what was really motivating her was a little bit fuzzy to me. And I did feel like that character kind of ironically fell into some of the sort of cliched traps that Cassavetes is, I think, trying to critique a little bit in this movie. So he's depicting all of these characters, mostly men, though the playwright is female, which I I like that detail, that there's also this woman who's acting like an asshole. Yeah, and also she's not like a kind of a stage stereotype, which obviously is not something, I mean, having now watched this Cassavetti's film, it's not the sort of thing I'd expect him to go for, like with really corny archetypes. This woman is just, you know, she's like a 65-year-old rich, but not overly rich lady. She's not like an artiste. (laughs) No, no, not at all. She's not someone you would look at on the street and be like, ah, yes, a playwright. (laughs) But they're all being really awful to this actress. And he clearly is critiquing that behavior, particularly from the director, who near the end of the movie gets really terrible. But this actress is kind of nuts, right? Like, she's hallucinating a dead person. And she's, like, makes out with, like, three male characters in this movie. Make out is maybe too strong a word for one of the smooches, but like she clearly, it's a sort of interesting conundrum because she says like, I'm not married. I don't have kids. Like my art is my life. 
And that's clearly true. It's not like she wants to marry any of these guys, except maybe the Cassavetes character. But she obviously needs sexual sort of like praise from these various men in a way that I found a little bit like, I think you're falling into some traps here, buddy. (laughs) And the aging thing just felt a little bit like she keeps saying like, that's actually really not the issue that I'm having. And then everyone is like, no, it is. And then she it clearly kind of is a little bit. And it felt like the movie wasn't completely, not that I need this film to like explain to me what this woman's issues are in like a speech, but I just felt like it wasn't 100% clear on what was actually going on with her Mm. internally. And this sort of like woman freaking out about aging, which obviously happens to us all, but it felt a little tiny bit to me, like a man writing that, you know, particularly given the extent to which she's like literally like having hallucinations while having a nervous breakdown which is not how most people deal with worrying about getting older (laughs) like most of us have other methods of coping with this but I think the performance is so strong that it kind of like I think she makes her feel so real that she kind of glosses over some of those things that are a little bit iffier to me but what did you think? Um, I was also thinking, <laughs> I was kind of also thinking about a lot of the characters that weren't really characters, like the secondary people who were working lower down the lad- ladder at the theatre. And I was just like, she is making life hell for all these people. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think like for me, probably the most likable character is there's like a tertiary actor who's also in the play because we see her kind of acting against several people. There's like a woman and a couple of children who are in the play who we basically don't see, but there's this guy with a moustache who is like the chillest member of the cast who just like quite likes her and he has a little speech towards the end where he's like, you know, even when she was nuts and she was like fully having a breakdown, she was always this really entertaining and charismatic person. And that's kind of the finale of the film is sort of where you really see that charisma shine through because up until now like we've seen her in this play but we've seen her in the play in the context of her really struggling with the role and a lot of the time it's just extremely tense if it'd been like tonally slightly different it would have literally felt like a horror movie because of like the ghost element and the fact that you're constantly feeling really stressed because she's about to do some kind of catastrophic fuck up on stage it definitely has that sort of horror element to it so i was kind of interested to see that some critics did actually somewhat label it as like a horror film in retrospectives but yeah kind of toward like in the finale which we will now talk about there's this like extended sequence where we see her and Cassavetes on stage together and by this point she is like absolutely trashed she is extraordinarily drunk and they basically drag her on stage because there's no other option they're like we can't cancel the show we just have to wheel her on stage and hope she like is functioning so they literally have someone like carrying her around the stage for her first scene but then once she's sobered up a little bit she's able to act opposite Cassavetes and they improvise this entire scene from scratch so like from the playwright's perspective it's just awful because this show is premiering in New York and it's not her show it's something completely completely different. It's no longer this kind of serious drama about menopause. It's this improvised kind of comedy drama where these two actors are seem nothing like the characters on the page. But it's going really well with the audience. And you do finally kind of see why Myrtle is so popular. Because up until now, it's been so internal. We've only seen stage 
scenes that are very uninspired, like I said. Like, the play does not seem like that interesting. And you've seen all these people, like, flocking to the stage door, being like, we love Myrtle Gordon. And then you watch this and you're like, yeah, because she's really charming and charismatic. And also, kind of because of, like, in the improv scenes, they're working a lot with kind of more old-fashioned kind of, like, comedy stylistic things. Quite, like, retro, as opposed to it being, like, a more serious like theater naturalistic drama and it just works really well and you're like yeah this is why Myrtle is so popular but it was kind of interesting to look at that in the context of Cassavetes obviously being like really into improv well and he staged a lot of plays throughout his career like he did a lot near the beginning but was also doing this you know it wasn't like he was he had a theater phase before he got famous and then just did movies like this was something that recurred throughout and I found the way he shot all the theater stuff really interesting and effective. Yeah, I mean, it makes the the, the stage... It's very, like, a lot of the time it's very static. Like, you get the audience eye view of the stage in a very kind of unflattering way. Like, he does not make it look good. But from when you're seeing stuff from the perspective of the actors, you're either seeing kind of this very realistic view of backstage, which is interesting because it's not something you see very much on screen, or you get this real sense of like the impact and the weight of the audience. Like it's very tense because you're aware of them being like watched. Yes. And I actually found he he shoots the the shot from the back of the theater or sort of the middle of the orchestra, maybe is might be where the camera's set up. Yeah. He uses that mainly in the beginning and the end of the movie. And I actually found that very effective because it wasn't completely just like dumping the camera at the back and then you're like watching tiny little people move around on stage. But you're, you do feel like you are watching a play, right? Like you can kind of see people's heads in front of you. And I mean, he, he does cut in those sequences, but they're clearly performing it as a play in the shoot. Right. I mean, I don't know the details, but that's obviously what's going on. And it has more of the feeling of like, oh, this actually is something that's being staged and performed. And there are people like real people were in the audience watching this and laughing in response than anything I can really think of. Right. You know, plays get staged in quotes in movies all the time, but it always feels very much like a sort of experiment done in a lab. And but also this... like a lot of the time they're very glamorized and it's like the magic of yes. the stage and it's all very kind of intense and beautiful. And this is very sort of grainy and 70s and like there's all these kind of chipboard sets and like people being wrenched in and out of their costumes backstage, you know. I think that she and Cassavetes are really good in that first scene of the movie also, actually. Although the last scene is where you get the sort of ecstatic rush of watching them perform. But I think that first scene does a huge amount of work in terms of conveying to you that these are like professional actors (laughs) who are good at their jobs. And as someone who has not been in a theater in 15 months or however long it's been. (laughs) Yes. I was just like, Oh my god. Like I miss this so much. And I think you know it opens that way on purpose to give you that sense of like this is what you're supposed to be getting. 
And then all the scenes that they stage kind of in the middle of the play, including that one again, they kind of go wrong over and over and over again. But they start out with a sort of take that works better. But I think what's so incredible about that ending, which really made the movie for me, although I had been enjoying it up to that point, is that when she shows up drunk, I mean, truly falling down, like she cannot walk. Yeah, it's like cataclysmic. Yes. One of the kind of stagehands or assistants or someone is trying to help her. And the director refuses to let him and forces her to walk down the hall by herself. And she's like falling into the walls and stuff. And it's very, very upsetting. And they, they're making, he's making, the, you know, the makeup person do her makeup for her. And she's like put on her own lipstick and it's all over her face. And I mean, it's so clear that this woman should not be allowed to get on stage. And it feels like the final kind of, you know, humiliation that these people are forcing her to endure. And the sense of her as someone who, like, obviously has been very difficult in many ways throughout this whole process, but is completely just being exploited. Yeah, I mean, they've not actually helped her in any way. Yes. The idea of, like, clearly you're actually very upset about this, or, like, the drinking is a problem. There's no effort to actually deal with any of that. Like, they sent her to a spiritualist, which doesn't help, (laughs) Played by John Cassavetti's mother. Great, great stuff. Both of the mums are in this film. But they're just trying to affect her behavior enough from the outside yeah. that she can go on doing her job, right? They're 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 treating symptoms in like ridiculous yes. ways rather than being like, stop the show and send her to rehab, you know? <laughs> yes. And so it's very so it's very upsetting to watch all of this happening. So and the first scene where she's out there, I guess she's kind of out of it and she almost falls over, as you said, the 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 nice guy with the mustache has to kind of carry her off the stage. But then she kind of just like has it, right? Because that's what she's able to do and she's kind of been explaining to people throughout this movie that her art is her life and she just wants to be able to kind of connect with the audience and you see how well she can do that and that scene with her and Cassavetes when they're improvising the whole thing I mean within the movie they're improvising it obviously it's scripted is just so joyful to watch that you or I, anyway, just forget all the other stuff that's just happened. And it's just so much fun to watch two actors who are that good performing. And I think the Cassavetes character is one of the things in the movie that doesn't totally work. Like, they've had some kind of relationship, but it's never completely explained what was going on. And he literally breaks up with her because he's just like, I don't see you as a woman anymore. And I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, I just watched that and I was like, this is an excuse. Like, you're just saying this because like, you just don't want to be dating her because you know she's going to be too much effort. (laughs) I mean, he has various excuses that he's clearly kind of an asshole, but it felt to me like that was not, that felt undercooked to me as a plot point. But I, I, I also thought that like, 
part of the reason why they're not on screen that much together in the movie really is that when they're on screen together you get the like chemistry and charisma that they have and they are so magnetic it did make me very surprised that the film was like such an unutterable flop at the time because like especially if i'd seen this in theaters i would have been like a lot more focused but like also at the time those would have been like two well-known figures like you surely it would have been compelling to people i mean i think he was just seen as like such a weirdo in this context like obviously he had the mainstream acting stuff but i think these movies were just sort of like what (laughs) okay but since then history has spoken because this film is been widely discussed in retrospectives and like you can find out you can look on the criterion channel and see various essays about it and so forth that is now very positively regarded yes and i like how kind of unresolved the ending is too because the play is great goes off great right like big applause but then you're like what about like the title is like opening night and it's like well you've made it to opening night (laughs) (laughs) and what's gonna happen the next night but Roland's in this interview that we mentioned has a like very positive interpretation of the end of the film. Her whole read on the film generally is that like the people have sort of been forcing this character, like imposing the view of like you're freaking out about aging onto this woman, even though she's not actually freaking out about aging. And then at the end, she says, I talked my leading man into going out on stage with me and ad-libbing the entire thing. And so the show does go on. But without a single word, she, the playwright, has written, it's a comedy now. The audience adores it and everyone applauds. It's great. Which I thought was also kind of like, I mean, all, everything she says is true, right? Like, she's kind of one, but... That also does give me a slightly different slant on her extremely rosy view of her own personal history. <laughs> she's looking back on this being like, Wonderful! <laughs> I mean, I think her interpretation is interesting mm. because the interpretation of a lot of other people, certainly some of the other critics, and like Roger Ebert's review, which I found really interesting to read, I did not agree with it, was totally just like, this woman is an alcoholic. And like, this is the nightmare of alcoholism. Is like I didn't this, think the right? film was about alcoholism. Like, the main character no. is definitely an alcoholic, but that's not the thrust of the story. It's like, this is one of the problems that has come off like the other problems she has. Yes. Whereas Rollins's view of this, and she's obviously from inside this character, you know, looking back, obviously, is so much less about, like, the fear of aging as a motivating factor for this. And totally that, like, all of this stuff is being kind of imposed on her character, right? And that's why she is sort of, you know, freaking out and not able to do the play, which is also, I mean, in the movie, right? Is that she's like, I just don't connect with this at all. And they're like, you do, you do. <laughs> she's like, but I don't. But I think that a lot of the ways people have interpreted the movie and the way that I did to a certain extent was that like, you're kind of supposed to think that there is a degree to which she's freaking out because she's aging. And I think for Gina Rollo, she's like, nope, that really wasn't what was going on in my head. And at the end, there is this kind of like rejection of what she was supposed to be experiencing. And obviously the like getting completely like blackout drunk is an act of lashing out against this being imposed on her. Right. 
And there's a kind of weird, like, I'm the author of this now as the actor, as opposed to the writer, which is also a tension that goes through the movie. And they keep telling her like, no, 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 you have to just say the lines and everyone's going to like it. It's going to be fine. And the audience fucking eats it up when she's just making shit up the whole time, right? And so... I did find it very darkly comical how much the audience just doesn't notice. Like, also in, like, the previous performances where, like, she will do something really chaotic and weird that from our perspective we're like, oh god, this is, like, so intense. And then the audience will just be like, oh, it was a bit strange, wasn't it? And, like, they don't realise that it was all unintentional. Which I think you would in real life. But then, like, once they get to the end, everyone's just like, wonderful, round of applause. And it's just like, okay, so you just, maybe just don't have very much respect for the audience? (laughs) I mean, I think the scenes in the middle are, there's a little bit more of that dark humour And there is, like, one of the performances that goes quite wrong, they do say, they've talked to people afterwards, and, like, half of them loved it and half of them hated it. So it was, like, everyone was totally on board. But I think the fact that everyone is into this performance at the end... It's the star power, because they're there for Myrtle. It's a vindication of her. Yeah. But, again, it's not like they can do exactly the same thing the next night, because there's no script. (laughs) I mean, what they've done isn't scripted, and also she's still an alcoholic, so... I just think it's always interesting when you have a movie with people who, like, have such different readings on it, all of which are kind of supported by the text. Yeah. Like, I don't... Like, I think Ebert's wrong, but I also can understand... And, you know, Roger Ebert was an alcoholic. So obviously for him, that's the thing that's going to stand out from this film. Like I can completely get why you would have an emotional reaction in that way and get a different thing out of this movie. Whereas for me, I was like, wow, this powerful man is treating this woman horribly, right? Like it's just a different (laughs) thing. Um, And the, you know, Gina Rollins is the person who was in the movie and she has her own specific view but I think you can kind of read what you want in a certain way onto the film within reason which I think is generally a sign of a piece of art that has a lot going on. Do we have any final thoughts? Uh, Yeah I really liked the extremely bright red colors that we occasionally saw in there and the weird echoing enormous emptiness of either the hotel room or the apartment she was staying in there's like she had this weird kind of like huge empty not in a sort of chic loft apartment kind of way um was that her apartment or was that the hotel room that was definitely a hotel room right because she has the penthouse yeah because it was like it was like completely empty and like barren with like a little kind of (laughs) like mattress bed in one corner and like some like statues and stuff and it just like was it was so unappealing and weird and like not homey and it didn't feel like a nice place to return to as well and it definitely felt like it had that sort of horror movie vibe in a bit in a way that sort of slightly reminded me of Suspiria because it had this these like pops of red color and I was like this is a great set (laughs) whereas I was like I would love to stay in that Airbnb for a week it's big and it's not my apartment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not being trapped in the apartment is, of course, crucial. But I was just like, wow, this, this, because you're used to seeing like a big white space, but like it's always portrayed in like a positive and chic light. And it's like, this was like the 70s and it does not look good. And it's like a hotel room in New Haven. <laughs> so, 
Yes. Though I'm pretty sure they shot this in Los Angeles because there's one shot where they're coming out of the theater where it's clearly it's LA. Like the, it's and the I was freeway. like, yeah. wait. Yeah. yeah, I was like, wait, is this meant to be in Los Angeles? And I spent 20 minutes being like, wait, where are we? And then they mentioned New Haven again. And I was like, okay, they just did a bad job with that one exterior shot of like showing the street signs. And I, I really liked all the costumes. I did not like the music, which occasionally comes in and is very intrusive and mostly somewhat dated, I would say. Um, but there's not too much of it. But yeah, it just really makes you feel how dull most things that get made now are palette-wise. Bring back Technicolor. <laughs> oh, please. There was some tweet going around with a bunch of Technicolor stuff, and I was just like, God, what a golden age. <laughs> All right. Well, we recommend if you want to spend two and a half hours being kind of stressed out. <laughs> uh, I'm definitely going to check out his other films for sure. Thanks again to Jen. We didn't actually wind up talking about Mikey and Nikki really at all in our conversation about this. Um, although, again, I thought about it constantly while watching this film. But, um, you know, check out that movie, too. If you would like to force us to watch a film of your choosing, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast, where we also have uh, commentary tracks, bonus episodes, etc. And next week, we will be watching a very different... <laughs> Very different kind of film. Uh, we're going to be doing Men in Black next week, which I have never seen. Wow. So, you know. A beloved childhood classic. Yeah. Yeah. So that should be fun. Uh, you can also check our Patreon for some scheduling stuff about book club titles. We've had a request for months to talk about the 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and I keep putting it off because I wanted to read the book and discuss and things have intervened but we'll be doing that relatively soon too and we'll be reading the book but next week is men in black gavia where can our listeners find you and your work online you can find me on twitter at hello underscore taylor and you can find me on youtube at behind the scenes and you can find me on twitter and letterboxd at ml davies the podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>